0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by my refreshed, relaxed, and recovered co-host, Coach Trevor Connor. It's often overlooked, sometimes forgotten, but it never should be. Recovery is just as important to strong performances as your daily workouts and weekly riding volume. Recovery is the other side of the training balance that we often neglect. That is, until we're in a race, the legs start to feel sluggish and the field rides away from us. Then we start asking, what happened? In today's technology-driven training world, we have easy-to-use tools like power meters to track our performance. But tracking recovery? Not so easy. What's lacking is that one clear metric or tool to tell us when we're fatigued. If you discuss the topic with coaches and elite riders, They'll each suggest a different way to monitor your recovery. Some will point to objective measurable metrics like resting heart rate, heart rate variability, or blood tests. Others will use more subjective measures, how they feel generally, the soreness they experience when they climb the stairs in the morning, or sometimes how much their family wants to avoid them. In today's episode, we delve into the question of recovery metrics, a question that comes from listener Greg Gibson. First, we'll discuss why the balance between training and recovery plays such an important role in performing at our best. That doesn't mean that being recovered all the time is a good thing. So we'll first address the difference between overtraining and functional overreaching. Next, we'll discuss a recent review comparing subjective metrics to objective metrics of recovery. If you think that a blood test or heart rate measure is necessarily better than answering a few questions every morning about how you feel, think again. In either case... We'll look at some of the tools for monitoring recovery, including tests like the POMS questionnaire of mood, and the so-called Rescue scale, that's R-E-S-Q scale, as well as heart rate variability. Finally, we'll hear from several coaches and athletes about what they feel works best when it comes to monitoring recovery. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Gaston, a professor at the Center for Exercise and Sports Science at Deakin University in Australia. Dr. Gaston has spent over a decade working with coaches and athletes in the field. He's particularly interested in how to best measure recovery outside of the lab and has written an influential review paper on the subject. Our other guests include veteran pro Brent Bookwalter with BMC Racing. Here's a shameless plug for Brent. While Brent still races full-time, he also now organizes a charity Grand Fondo in Nashville called the Book Walter Binge. If you're interested in riding, chatting with a few pros, maybe asking them some questions about how they recover and how they measure their recovery, check it out. We're also joined by two excellent coaches here in Boulder, Matt Casson with Apex Coaching and Fast Talk regular Frank Overton, owner of Fast Cat Coaching. We'll also hear from Armando Mastracci, the founder of Exert Training Software, about the potential to use training software to give us clues about our recovery state. And finally, we'll get a more medical opinion of recovery from head physician at University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center, Dr. Jason Glowney. All that and more in this episode of Fast Talk. So sit back, relax, let all those training miles soak in. Let's make you fast. All right, Trevor, let's start with an overview of the importance of
1: recovery. So I said it before this, and I'm going to stand by this, even though I'm going to get myself in trouble. There is no such a thing as too much recovery. And and I'm certain somebody out there is now going to spend two months sitting on the couch, never ride their bike, (laughs) and go, well, I'm very recovered. Why am I not performing well? Uh, So maybe I should put a, a little qualifier on that statement. But let me explain why recovery is really really important we've said this before i will say it probably many times again but remember that training does damage to your body and you it's it's good damage you want that damage because what happens is your body says i don't like that i wasn't able to handle that so now i'm going to do what it takes To repair that damage, but not only just repair that damage, but rebuild you better and stronger so the next time you do this to me, I can handle it. The thing is, that repair work doesn't happen when you're out on the bike. That repair work happens when you recover. So if all you're ever doing is damaging your muscles, damaging your body, and you don't give it the time it needs to recover, you're going to get weaker. You're going to get slower. You're not going to get faster. Too many athletes get really, really worried about taking time off, getting off the bike, resting. You know, I find it funny that I just did some interviews with, with a couple top pros that said, yeah, I like having a couple times a year where I go and sit on a beach and I don't even take my bike with me for a week in the middle of the season because they know that's what gets them through the season and they know that if they time their training right, they can even get stronger. What a life those guys have. Yeah, taken, taken
0: nice? weeks off to go to the beach with without your bike, and then coming back and racing, racing around the
1: world. Even better, they get to spend months just absolutely ripping themselves apart <laughs> on a bike. It's more fun than that. This is true. We should uh, emphasize that
0: today we're going to talk metrics, but we're not really going to talk about how to recover. That is for a different podcast. Sleep. <laughs> That is how you do it. It's pretty easy. We're just going to have a podcast where we say sleep,
1: sleep. sleep. We're just going to play some nice music for da, an hour. So we oh. had a Facebook live session where somebody did ask us about. Uh, they said, "Oh, yeah, I, I need to recover, and I don't want to just sleep all the time. So, so what's some active recovery that we can do?" And really, honestly. It, not everything needs to be structured. Like I, I've that. got it.
0: You you sleep, but you dream about doing more bike riding. There you go. That's your so, active, active recovery.
1: We, we will have to do a podcast at some point on techniques for recovery, but really our bodies are amazing at it. Give them the fuel they need. Get out of the way. Let them recover. Rest. Bam. Another really important thing to remember about recovery is, well, this isn't true for training. This is very true for recovery. Stress is stress. So when you are doing damage to your body, that is stress. But when you're not sleeping well at night, that is stress. When work is beating you up, that is stress. And all of them affect your recovery. So don't say, hey, well, I had this week where work was killing me. Uh, The kids were sick, so I was up all night with them. I had all these errands to run, all these different things were happening, but I only trained six hours. So it was a recovery week. No, it all adds up. And if it was a really hard week on you at work or school or at home, that affects your recovery. So it was not a restful week. Uh, I think think it's, um,
0: you shouldn't think of all stresses as good stress though, either. Like there's training stress, which is what you want. And then there's family stress and work stress, and you can't think of that as productive type of stress. So,
1: No, that's so. I was saying. Stress is stress only when it comes to recovery, not the the training. And that's a fantastic point. And when athletes complain that, hey, I only seem to be able to handle six, seven hours on the bike, and then I'm beat up, what's wrong with me? Look at what all the other stress is in your life, because likely you have a lot of other things that are going on, and you really only have the bandwidth to handle six, seven hours on the bike. If you're sitting in Hawaii with nothing to do, I promise you, you'll be able to train 20 hours and feel great by the end of it. Most of us don't have that luxury. So Trevor, you've mentioned the fact that
0: you need to do some damage sometimes and then recover to get the adaptation you're,
1: you're looking for. Right. So that's a great point, Chris. There are two sides to this equation. If all you're ever doing is recovering, you're, you're not going to be fast on, on the bike either. So there is a point where you have to do some damage. So fatigue is not a bad thing. If fatigue is controlled, especially if it's planned out, and then it's followed by recovery to allow you to adapt, that's how you're going to hit your highest levels. But you do need to have those times where you push yourself, where you dig yourself a little bit deep. Often in the literature, they, they have two different terms. They have what's called overreaching and overtraining. Overtraining is something you want to avoid. That's when you've dug really deep, and you're looking at weeks to months before you can get back to normal levels. Overreach isn't as severe. And some people see it as a continuum where overreach is the first step and that leads to overtraining. But there's also there, there was a, a great study, which we'll put in our references, that said actually there's no evidence that it's a continuum, that they might actually be two completely separate things. But overreaching can often be functional, meaning it's an intentional fatigue with some similar symptoms to overtraining. But if you stop yourself soon enough and give yourself that recovery, it's going to lead to those great adaptations. So that's the idea behind going and doing a big training camp or doing a week where you really beat yourself up. You are going to overreach. You're going to be fatigued and slower at the end of it, but hopefully then you get that bump. Okay, Trevor, so how do you tell the difference between overreaching and overtraining? So I think that is really the question of this podcast. And in my case, Chris, it's usually when you see me Two, three minutes behind you on a climb, looking like I'm falling off my bike and complaining about how miserable I feel. Um, Yeah, I'm probably very overreached.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I mean,
0: sometimes, but sometimes I just drop you. Well, yeah.
1: (laughs) Have I ever dropped you on a climb?
0: Probably 15,000 feet into a seven-hour ride. That's when you're kicking my butt.
1: Yeah, I did do that last year. We just kept hitting hills until you finally got too yeah. tired. Keep well, working. you know, I
0: have a child now, so I don't have all day to ride. Yeah, excuses,
1: excuses. <laughs> Hanukkah needs me. <laughs> yeah, but that, so that's really the, the question of this podcast. How do you know from those metrics when you are dealing with good functional fatigue and when you are starting to push overtraining and need to stop? Yes, and uh, we've kind of been ignoring Dr.
0: Gaston, but he is a leading expert in this. So uh, let's get him to help us understand this really important topic.
1: So why don't we start right there? So in in a big picture, one minute, two minute, what's the key to balancing training and recovery?
3: Well, the objective, obviously, is to is to approve and adapt. So we need to get our training loads right. And that's not always an easy thing to do. We know that too little load is um, not appropriate, either for for performance or we also, you know, for injury. We also know that too great a load results in underperformance and you start to get symptoms of illness, under-recovery and often injury as well. So what we're really looking for is this sweet spot within our training. We need... Uh, there's a variety in our training. We need to be quite cyclical in how we do it. Um, sometimes I think, particularly in endurance sports, athletes, the, the goal becomes almost um, training becomes the goal, and it's about how many kilometers and how far I've gone, whereas what we're really looking for is adaptation and ultimately improved performance. So it's working towards that and knowing when to be able to back off, knowing when to push hard. You know, you're not going to adapt unless you do train hard, but training hard the whole time is going to result in stagnation, underperformance and probably illness and injury.
1: Agreed. One of of the things I always tell the athletes that I coach is be as intense in your recovery as you are in your training. If you train that much harder, you got to make sure your recovery is that much better.
3: Yeah, most most definitely. Um, you know, Michael Kalman, who's done a lot of work in the subjective areas of self reports, he's got a really nice model of. I think it, he calls it the scissor model, but it's a, it's the balance between you're able to continue to increase your load if you're able to in, continue to increase your recovery and maintain that that balance. As soon as it gets out of balance, then that's when you're likely to struggle. It, that's going to be very different for different individuals. You know, the, your training history, the age of the athlete, the modalities of, of um, exercise that you're doing. There's a whole host of, of things that will actually influence that.
0: Looking at this study you did and the, the differences between subjective and objective metrics, it sounds like one of the biggest conclusions was that subjective m- metrics are a bit more sensitive. Could you give us sort of an overview of the two, the two types of metrics?
3: Yeah, most most definitely. So what we did, what what our interest was in was athlete performance management and in particular athlete monitoring. Historically, uh, the physiological and objective measures are, are very strong in the literature, um, but there's really good support for self-report measures. But much of it, much of the literature is actually in, in laboratory environments. So our interest is, um, as I'm sure is the case with your listeners, it's about being applied and it's about training out in the field. So what we did is we, we, we did a systematic review where we were looking for studies that had both concurrent objective and subjective measures. So there's a whole body of literature in the objective measures. There's a whole body of literature in the subjective measures. But we needed to to be, to be able to answer our question as to which was most sensitive. We needed studies that were actually had data on the, t- the two of them being collected at the same time. And they needed to be in the field, so they couldn't be in a laboratory um, setting where there was changes in load, either an increase in load, a decrease in load, so that was really looking at acute changes, and then serial monitoring over a longer term, which allowed us to look at the sensitivity of these measures in more chronic training. So the measures that emerged out of the review, there are endocrine and hormonal measures. Uh, so things like cortisol, testosterone, epinephrine and norepinephrine, um, growth hormone, insulin-like growth factors. So those are some of the endocrine and hormonal measures. Some blood measures, you know, blood cell counts, somatocrites, hemoglobins. Some markers, blood markers that were related to the immune system, you know, leukocytes and immunoglobulins were to name a few. Inflammation and muscle damage, so quite a few in the in the physiological area and the objective area. So any markers of inflammation or muscle damage, T and alpha, and you know things of measures of oxidative stress, uh, creatine kinase was in there, um, which is one of the objective measures that has some sensitivity. The classic physiological measures, you know, lactate, um, and then moving into your heart rate measures of you know heart rate rest, heart rate variability, um, heart rate maximum, heart rate recovery vo2 max as a performance metric and then finally your your, your true performance measures both either a short performance or a sustained performance
1: so these are are all the things that most cyclists would think wow this this is for olympians this is really sophisticated metrics they'd be able to tell everything about you when when they're hearing about creatine kinase and uh, heart rate variability and all these different metrics
3: it, it's pretty, you know that's all pretty heavy stuff and a lot of it is is laboratory or if you are measuring it in in the field you you do need to take some sophisticated you know sophisticated equipment out into the field and probably the the other consideration around this is that it's it's invasive you know most of them are blood related measures some of them can be taken with saliva but you know that, that's not for you 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 know your sub-elite or your recreational endurance athlete or, or even you know those that are elite athletes but just in terms of convenience and cost and availability.
1: But then you were comparing these to subjective measures which are, are really almost mood states right?
3: Yeah most, most definitely. So again there's a there's probably a sweet of types of measures so mood states profile of mood mood state is a very well known and regarded uh, measure i mentioned michael kelman earlier you know his rescue uh that looks at stress and recovery it's a 76 item questionnaire things related to anxiety uh, there's another metric that looks at the daily life demands of ath- athletes uh, it's called delta and then uh Another one we looked at was a, a multi-component um, distress scale, which is, had fewer items, but actually looks at you know, uh, three or four different aspects of you know, these self-report measures.
1: Um, but these, these are essentially questionnaires getting at what's going on in your life. How are you feeling? How stressed do you feel? How, how tired do you feel? This is certainly not anything like the objective measures where you're taking blood and, and as you said, being quite, quite invasive and quite sophisticated out on the road.
3: Yeah. And, you know, for many, it's, it's, it can be difficult to get your head around this. You know, why, why are these actually able to be more sensitive and more consistent? So what we, what we found overwhelmingly, the subjective measures were more consistent in their ability to pick up changes. They were more sensitive. They provided earlier warning signs. Many of the objective measures were probably, you know, were better at Chronic changes, but that's probably changes when you, when you're really reaching into overtraining. But what athlete monitoring is all about and training prescriptions all about is being able to, you know, plan, plan on the longer term, but then on almost on a daily basis, be able to, to modify that and, and tweak that. So you really need these very regular serial measures and insights that can guide your practice. Questionnaires, diaries, there are also – what we didn't do in this particular piece of work is we only looked at self-report measures that were well-validated in the literature, but there's a whole other suite of – and more of our recent work is, is supporting that – but there's a whole other suite in the applied environment whereby some self-report measures are, are much more practically based and perhaps diary-like information
1: I find this really interesting because I had a uh, a talk with a, a coach here in Colorado who I have a lot of respect for, and we were both talking about with our athletes, we pretty much demand that they give descriptions of their rides and you can pick up from their descriptions of their rides when they're starting to push fatigue when they're starting to burn out much quicker than any number is going to show you because their descriptions start getting a little more negative. They start talking a little bit more about mood and lack of motivation. And so you can actually see that in that subjective description before you can see it anywhere else. And it seems like that's not nearly as scientific, but it matches up with what you're saying, that these mood states really pick up on it much quicker.
3: The great coaches, the really experienced great coaches... We'll be able to tell you. That they, they'll, they'll sense it in all sorts of things, in conversations, in facial expressions, in body language, demeanor, engagement. Uh, they'll know. that They've got a really good sense of where their athletes are, are at. I think much of where we're trying to go with this is how can we help others with less experience or still learning or at a, at a different level, how they can learn from that. So, so much of this is about education. In the early days, we used to do a lot of work with heart rate. Wearing heart rate monitors to have a really good sense of, of how you're responding to different types of exercises and different challenges. But then we used to play these games of, okay, now we need to get rid of the heart rate monitors and you need to tell us what you're actually doing and where you're responding. So you're almost training the athlete to be to self regulate and to have a really good sense of how they're how they're responding
1: so you mentioned in the the study one of the things that the the subjective measures could do that you really couldn't do with the objective is differentiate acute fatigue from chronic fatigue and it seems like that's important because if my understanding is correct, acute fatigue is something you want some of the times so that's when you you do a big hard training block and you're a little tired from it and And now you need to rest where the chronic fatigue is when you're starting to push that overreach and potentially that overtraining and it can get into trouble. Is that am I am I reading this right? Is that what you were seeing? And how does it differentiate?
3: Trevor, spot on. Um, the, The nature of the psychological measures is that they're very sensitive to those early acute changes and they continue to be sensitive as it moves into more chronic training Which is really where we want to go, because as an athlete, as a coach, you might have you know significant blocks of training. Hard training is important. It might be a week, it might be two weeks, it might be three weeks, uh, a little bit longer than that. You know, we have to be mindful of how we're balancing that uh, load and recovery scenario. Whereas the 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 objective measures acutely will change. There's no doubt about that, and there's great literature about that. It's whether they're sensitive to Continued training and whether they are sensitive enough and taken frequently enough to give you feedback where you can actually make some changes to your, your training and your prescription. Whereas, you know, taking a blood measure on a daily basis is, is not going to occur. Right. Whereas being able to, you know, how are you feeling? What are, you, what are your subjective measures, your self reports, your questionnaires, your, you know, your surveys, your diaries? That's actually going to give you meaningful information. And, what I'm increasingly interested in is how can we take regular, very regular measures in a really convenient way, where we don't we're not challenged by compliance. It doesn't become too onerous, too much of an effort, but we can really leverage the fact that we've just got almost daily daily information, and we can start to look at trends, look at responses, compare one cycle to another, one year to another, and progressing along those lines.
1: Dr. Gasson spent over a decade working with professional athletes and coaches, and it shows, because he recognizes that some of these objective measures may be effective, but not if it's difficult to track them. Case in point, we talked with veteran pro Brent Bookwalter, a world tour rider with BMC, about how he tracks his recovery, how he knows when to pull the plug, and what's different about pros. As you'll see, he favored more subjective measures that he could monitor day to day.
4: Yeah, it's, I've noticed. You know, these there's a lot of systems now that are tracking recoveries, heart rate variability, or um, yeah, other other parameters that are just entered in from the user. And I've never consistently used any of those. I think for me, you know, I, I definitely am a big advocate of keeping a training journal, keeping notes, and having some consistency in those. And I think the consistency is key. It doesn't it doesn't really do you any good to have Two weeks of the year where it's super detailed, where you write two pages, but then the rest of the year you don't have anything. So I think finding a, a journaling training log method that's sustainable and realistic to keep through the year, um, I think that can go a long way. That's been helpful for me in managing, you know, day-to-day recovery, but also looking at similar different training block blocks week to week, month to month um, through the season from year to year. Past that, yeah, I mean sometimes I'll I'll chart my resting heart rate, waking heart rate. And then, you know, just looking at heart rate to power when I'm out on the bike. But I think the biggest thing is just, you know, being intuitive and perceptive of my my physical state, how I feel physically, um, but then also mentally trying to be honest with, with how I feel mentally and even relying on um, some input and feedback from those close to me, whether it's my wife or my friends about how coming through. I think those people that are with us, they can... If we do it long enough, you can start to see some patterns and they can, they can tell you like, wow, you know, you're really due for a rest week or gosh, like you're coming into good form now. I can, I can tell you're, you're firing, you're getting sharp. Like you're in a good place. You're peaceful. You're Zen out and try to rely on all those. How do you know
1: when you're going out for a ride? How do you know when to say it's not in me today? I'm going home.
4: Yeah, I think I definitely look at, um, the power numbers, the heart rate numbers, and then I think being on the same page with my coach about sort of a, an expectation of how difficult, um, this session should be. Is this a, I have to feel good the whole ride kind of ride, or is this a, this is going to be uncomfortable but I'm going to get through it? Or is this a, you're going to feel like shit and you just got to dig deep and suffer through it and and push all the way to the end. And I think mo- the majority of the training falls into that middle section, but I think, um, having a good expectation and plan with my coach uh, about knowing what is the ante- anticipated sort of um, feeling out there and challenge is really valuable when deciding, you know, whether to pull the pin or not.
1: Any other s- suggestions, advice for for our listeners in terms of uh, knowing where the recovery's at or, or knowing uh, when they need rest and, and, and when uh, they've
4: had enough rest? When I look at myself and what I do and how I'm racing, you know, we're we are racing through some, you know, some pretty deep fatigue zones in these races and our bodies compensate accordingly. And that's partly what what I think allows um, a professional rider to gain that added layer of depth. But I think for the general public, the people who aren't able to, you know, have training be their life and their main priority during their day, I think a little more moderation and caution is always, for me, is the prescription to hand out sort of the the when and out, leave it out, you know, I can really focus a lot of energy in my day if I need to on recovery. There's a big difference between doing a big session and, or a big week and coming back and laying on the couch and, and just really laying low and feeding myself properly compared to the days when I have to finish those sessions and I'm running to he, Home Depot and working on some projects around the house and then cooking dinner and having people over and, and staying moving. So I think being really cognizant of what life outside the bike is going to throw your way. And make sure to to factor that into the the recovery from whatever you're doing is really important. And if you're not sure, you know you can always add training on later. But it's hard to um, pull yourself out of a hole if you let yourself slip too deep.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Let's get back to our discussion with Dr. Gaston and subjective questionnaires that may allow easy and effective monitoring of your recovery.
0: With these questionnaires, did you are they they meant to be taken daily or? Pre and post-ride what what was the best method for for using the questionnaires
3: different questionnaires will have different approaches and what they're actually trying to get at and why they're trying to get it most of the validated ones that, that have been around in the literature for some time large number of items and done less frequently weekly would probably be as good as you get i would have thought with many of these measures you know um, Rescue, for example, has a, you know, is a 76 item questionnaire. That's, you're not going to do that on a regular basis. There are versions of these surveys that are becoming much shorter and, and designed for very regular measurement. So there's a, a new one out called the, um, short stress recovery scale, which I think is about an eight item survey. So a lot of these things are starting to, to appear on smartphones. Very very easy. You've you've come back. You ask about you know when you do them, different variations. I, they they tend to be done. They need to be done at a consistent time each day. That's really important. Often either at the end of the day or first thing uh, first thing in the morning are, are good times to do them. Mm-hmm. Where that's where it's it's consistently placed either you know before training before you start your training day or at the end of the training day where you've done your training and you're looking how you how you're feeling and how you're responding. Some of the um, more useful question is have got a combination of mood, stress, fatigue measures, and then there's also some physical symptoms. Do you have pain? Are you sore? Measures of muscle soreness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's a combination. Uh, sleep can feature in many of these.
1: So if you were going to pick a couple, that would be a good starting point. Um, I mean, palms keeps coming up, and that one seems to be Kind of a 5-10 minute test, so somewhat manageable. Um, are, are there other ones that you would recommend to the listeners to to try if they were going to pick one?
3: The Poms is is focuses on mood, uh, whereas some of the, some of the others have been more specifically designed for sport. So the the short. Um, stress recovery scale, which is a new scale that's from, it's from Michael Kalman's group. I've mentioned Michael a couple of times. That's well, well worth looking at. Luana Main, who's a, a colleague here on, on the, the re- review that we did. And, and actually, I, I should mention that the review that we did was, um, Part of Anna Saw's PhD, and uh, she's really progressed this self-report work and athlete monitoring work considerably. But Luana Main, uh, one of her measures is actually a multi-component training distress scale, and that's got 22 items, and that's a really good one to probably do on a weekly basis. Uh, so there are there are a couple of ones.
0: So let's get into the specifics of objective metrics, and maybe you could walk us through some of the the pros and cons and how best to apply them for for individual athletes. Maybe we start with uh, some of the autonomic measures like heart rate variability.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's a really important question because ultimately our recommendations are that there's a suite of measures. That that athletes and coaches might use that it's not just, you know, we're not coming from a perspective of subjective as God. This is, this is where you need to go. It's, we've identified that they're sensitive and consistent, but I, I think adding in the suite of monitoring, your objective measures become really important. So we talked earlier about some of the blood measures and the impact practicalities of those, whereas heart rate measures have potentially some really good utility. The autonomic nervous system. So it's really about control of, of our cardiac, cardiac respiratory responses. So our, our, our involuntary nervous system becomes really important. And with our heart rate measures, we've got a, a, a constant playoff between our, our parasympathetic system and our sympathetic system. So, you know, the sympathetic system really drives our increase in heart rate, our increase in blood pressure, and it, it's in response to exercise. Uh, whereas at rest, our sympathetic system is really trying to tone everything down and um, and get back to a baseline rest our recovery. Our
1: parasympathetic
3: system, our parasympathetic system, yes, yeah. So it's it's really it's really trying to you know come back to a, a resting recovery situation. So some of the some of these heart rate measures tap into that balance. So probably the three heart rate measures, heart rate variability, which really looks at the the distance between each heart rate, each beat to beat, and then tracking that over a series of series of time, and we actually find um, surprisingly sometimes it's uh, can be a little bit counterintuitive, but heart rate very vari- good heart rate variability where there is reasonable variability between beat to beat, generally reflects rest. And recovery and not in the state of, of stress or anxiety. Whereas when we, when we start to be fatigued, maybe starting moving to over, overreaching our heart rate variability becomes less. So it gets decreased. So we get a very consistent or much more consistent beat to beat time interval. So there are measures out, out there that are looking to try and mathematically analyze that and provide some feedback to, uh, you know, to athletes. Right. So that's that's heart rate variability. A couple of the other measures uh, that that are used, heart rate recovery. So what's actually happening as soon as if you cease a constant load of exercise, so a constant intensity of exercise, and then you stop, it's how quickly your heart rate will actually recover back down to baseline levels. And again, there are reports that suggest that, a more responsive system in a state of, of rest and recovery, the heart rate will come down much faster. Mm-hmm. If you're more chronically um, stressed or fatigued, that heart rate recovery is going to be delayed. And then the other one that's starting to see a little bit of attention in the literature is um, heart rate kinetics at the start of exercise. So how quickly the heart rate goes, uh, goes from a resting situation up to – a steady state level. Uh, the thing with heart rate recovery and heart rate kinetics is that, that you need to do a consistent bout of exercise. So it almost becomes a, a, a mini, a mini test, either in the laboratory or in the field. You know, you have to ride or run at a, at a very controlled pace right. to, to be able to consistently measure what's happening with your, your heart rate on kinetics or your heart rate off kinetics. Whereas the great value and the potential in heart rate variability is it's actually measured at rest. And typically, it's, it's measured first thing in the morning while you're lying down, you know, and immediately on I'm waking.
1: You're also going to have a bit of a, a training effect, whereas you get fitter, you're going to see a more responsive heart rate at the start of exercise and, and at the end of an effort. So you need to differentiate that, that long-term improvement in fitness from trying to figure out what's going on with fatigue.
3: Yeah, most definitely. I, you know, I knew of an an athlete, uh, a triathlete who, um, for his, for his long ride or his daily ride, he lived near a hill and to get to actually the, the route of his ride, he had to go up this very consistent, long, steady hill. And he used to use his heart rate response going up that hill to decide whether he'd actually do the training session as planned or whether he'd make some modifications to it or whether he'd simply turn around and go home.
1: That's a great idea. With the heart rate variability, I know there's a lot of different ways of uh, of doing it. Um, and I know the, the most common, I'm not even going to try to uh, give the long form of this, but the, the RMSSD. Yes. Is there any particular technique that you find more effective than the other? Do you agree with this? Take it supine and then standing, or, or how, do you, how would you recommend approaching it?
3: Don't have a lot of um, practical experience with it, other than you know a little bit that I've read in the in the literature. You're right about the RM SSD. That's probably the the most appropriate one. There is a re- recent paper out uh, that looked at elite rowers who were championship rowers, um, only a, a, effectively a case study of four rowers, and they indicated that resting heart rate was was important. And the individual responses in these athletes was quite important. So two athletes um, had very suppressed resting heart rate, so really strong, you know, vagal parasympathetic, parasympathetic tone. And they responded differently, and the data suggested you almost needed to look at um, a couple of metrics within the suite of heart rate variability rather than just a single metric. Not sure I answered that very well, actually. but
1: No, I mean – I'm very interested in the heart rate variability. I tried to read uh, some of the research on it, and really what I was hearing is there's something to this. We can definitely find indicators of people's recovery level, but we're still in the early days of figuring out uh, exactly how to best measure it.
3: And intuitively, I I think it has lots of um, upside because it's a resting measure and it can be taken relatively easily easily. Not necessarily with, you know, really sophisticated equipment or equipment that, uh, you know, technology that's likely to be used for other purposes for the athlete, i.e., you know, training and heart rate measurement, whatever it might be. So very feasible, very practical.
1: We were able to ask two top coaches, Matt Casson with Apex Coaching and Frank Overton, owner of FastCat Coaching, about their thoughts on objective versus subjective metrics. As experienced coaches, they certainly emphasize the importance of listening to your body. But they had an interesting point that the objective measures can help you pay better attention to your recovery. That or make you a little obsessive. How do you have your athletes monitor their recovery? Are there metrics? Is it feel? What are, what are your techniques?
5: Pretty much 100% feel for, for all the athletes I work with that that really, you know at the, at the end of the day, if you wake up and you feel good and your garment is telling you you need another 48 hours of recovery, start your workout and if you feel fine then then keep going with it. I think just like people get overly obsessed with numbers in a certain interval set, people also get obsessed with, you know, they see their training plan, they see this is the workout I have to do today. And so then they just kind of dig their head in and kind of ignore how they feel. So I one of the most important things I always stress with my athletes is just listen to your body. And if it's if you're tired, you're tired for a reason. If you got three hours of sleep last night, then okay, you need to take that into consideration. But I just I don't think that the those metrics are accurate enough to just forego listening to your own body and just listen to what wearable technology stuff a lot of that what that tells you to do. I don't think that there's enough information there to individualize that to where you should override your own personal feeling on that day.
1: Frank, how do you feel?
5: I, I coach
6: recovery techniques. The fundamentals: sleep, rest, nutrition, well-designed training plan. There is a new device that I've been using and have recommended my athletes. It's called a whoop and it's a wearable that is like a combination heart rate monitor and, and Fitbit and it produces a recovery score. And so you wake up in the morning, you look at your whoop and it's, it gives you a recovery score. And if you're 80%, you're going to be good to go. But if you, you know, if you got three hours of sleep, your whoop score is going to be low. If you're uh Heart rate is elevated in the morning from past training. That's going to factor into your whoop score. And, and it, they've got a really nice app and a, a user interface and athletes will um, use their whoop score and uh, to gauge how well they're doing at getting good sleep, recovering. It, it, it'll even divvy out your REM sleep and you know, restless sleep. It'll tell you how many times you've been restless in the night. If you got up in the back in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, or if you laid in bed for an hour and a half before you actually fell asleep. Things like that. It'll, you know, if you drink alcohol the night before, it'll affect your sleep and the, the whoop score can capture that. So it really teaches athletes a lot about their bodies and what maybe, you know, how to optimize their recovery from just their lifestyle.
1: And you found it's it's pretty accurate or it works well with your athletes?
6: You know, it, it I don't know if there's enough science out there about that. I mean, you can't say, oh, you know, it's plus or minus 1.5% like an SRM. I think the value of the whoop is it gets athletes to start thinking about going to bed early, um, eating better nutrition, you know, maybe drinking less alcohol if they're they're doing that, Um, you know, maybe doing a better job at actually sleeping, like, you know, pulling the blinds or getting a noisemaker to drown out the the noise from the city or, you know, just looking at what their quality of sleep is because, you know, sleep is so important. I mean, you know, why are you only getting five hours of sleep a night? Shut off your computer, go to bed early, you know, get a better bedtime routine. And so I, I like it because f- it teaches athletes, you know, they're, they're the ones that come back to me and are like, Oh, my whip score was low. And <laughs> yeah, I didn't feel so hot on the, the workout today. And it, it kind of correlates to, well, you got a poor night's nice sleep. And that's that common sense, but it's, it's a number that gets, it's thought provoking for the athletes.
5: I think one thing with some athletes can get pretty neurotic. And again, you know, there's, there can be an overemphasis on numbers. And I know that, uh, one team that I had specifically, like you could tell he, he would take that, his recovery metric, like you oh, take yeah. it really seriously. He'd be Like, Oh, well I'm, I'm pretty wrecked. So I'm not going to go on the group ride with you guys today. Like I'm just going to, it's like, well, did you feel bad or are you seeing a number that says you should feel bad? And now you feel bad. And and at the same time, there are, there are phases in a training cycle where like you should wake up and you should feel tired and beat up and you should go out and ride your bike. Yep. And so there needs to be again, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that specific, the, about but that. like if there is, there needs to be some correlation of, Okay, if this is a workout you're doing, then a score of 60 is fine. But if you're doing some other workout, then a the score of 60 means don't, don't do it.
6: Yeah, there's times where you got to dig in and follow the plan. Yep. Yeah, independent of – like we expect you to be knackered.
1: I fell into that trap with the, the resting heart rate about 15 years ago where I was <laughs> taking it every morning and started getting nervous about what my resting heart rate was going to be. So every morning I woke up and it was, it's higher, it's higher, and it's higher. And I'm like starting to have panic attacks over this rising heart rate and thinking I'm burning out. I'm like, no, I'm just stressed about my That's, heart rate. That says something about your psychology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I used
6: to have this like protocol to get my resting heart rate where – because I noticed if I moved to get up to look, it, mm-hmm. it would go up. So I had this like <laughs> – I'd put the heart rate monitor on the night side. Yep table so I didn't even have to move. Just All you had to do is open your eyes and then it would be as low as possible. So that's entirely neurotic.
0: Are there any uh, products that are useful here? For example, uh, Whoop. I'm not sure if you've heard of that or have any experience with that, but any products that do a good job of measuring or, or detecting heart rate variability?
3: There's a lot on the market and they're increasingly becoming on the market. Um... On one end, you've got your, your larger companies that have good um, historical work in this space, Polar, um, First Beat, and then more newer entrants probably to the market, things like, you know, iAthlete I or um, Sweet Beat, Elite, heart rate variability. So, they're, you know, there are a range out there. What's hard to determine sometimes is the the validity and the reliability and the robustness of these these measures. You know, your big companies that have been progressing for a period of time usually their their kit is is more validated and it's it's at a higher price point. So certainly, you know, consumers need to be really careful and mindful of how reliable and how useful the information is and. Over, over time, uh, scientists and uh, and those out in the field will, will start to investigate these and, and publish data on you know which ones are are better than others.
1: And that's why we were specifically asking about the Whoop because the the listener who uh, sent us the question that that sparked this podcast uh, specifically asked about it. It's a uh, a wrist strap that claims to measure your heart rate variability twenty four seven. It also claims to Measure your sleep quality, which I imagine you would say, well, if it's, if it's accurate, that would be amazing. But I had a feeling that was going to be a response of, well, how do we know the, the accuracy of this?
3: There, um, Commercially and internationally, there's a lot of work going into this space. Wearables in particular are, are a huge market. Wrist-worn wearables in particular, because of their, their practicality, certainly our heart rate measure, measures from a, a, a wrist-worn sensor is, is not going to match the accuracy and the reliability of a chest strap. Many of your, your wrist-worn watches are also compatible with your, your chest straps, You know your Polars, your Garmin. They, they do that so you can get good, reliable, objective data. But I have, I have no doubt that the, the wrist-worn wearables and more the, con, the more consumer products will continue to get better as you know, research and innovation continues. But what's really important, I think, for the you know the, the listener and the computer, consumer is that you know they, they try and do their, their due diligence. And in many respects, it, it's it's trial and error. It's uh, you know doing your own pseudoscience science and uh, and trying to control what's going on, trying to interpret um get a sense whether whether you're getting outliers or results that just are just out there. You know, you, you can't explain them, you don't know why, and you think it's probably more likely to the technology than what's actually going on. The the value of the serial monitoring daily, and that's the great, great advantage of these things, is that you can look at your serial trends. So you can Almost accept, you know, an outlier that you can't really explain. But if you've got a consistent trend downwards, or uh, you know, a spike upwards that's related to something, then that can actually um, tell you some really meaningful information. So look for the trends. So, so some of, some of my advice, I think, is uh, you know, we're all different. We respond in in, uh, in very individual ways, and that's hard to, that can be hard to capture in the literature. I think regular monitoring is really, really important, and doing that and being able to, you know, document and record. And again, the nice part about you know these these individual consumer products is that they're cloud-based. They go up. They have they can have nice interfaces where they're logging this information. The continued education and, and almost self-regulation of it's a it's a journey. It's it's learning. It's experimenting. It's really trying to understand your body and how you respond to training. And being smart about you managing your load and why you're training. Some of the earlier comments were about avoiding overtraining. Training hard is important, but it needs to be balanced with with recovery uh, at, at various times, both in the short term and in the long term. So how do you get that balance right? And I think part of that is actually you plan and you project, but then you use these types of measures, both objective and subjective, to regulate and refine what you're doing on a uh, you know in a sh- in the shorter time span.
1: One other product that helps attract track both training load and recovery is training software itself. Most packages have some variation of the performance manager chart. The traditional chart, developed by Dr. Andrew Coggin and Hunter Allen, has a chronic training load, an acute training load, and a training stress balance, or TSB. Theoretically, TSB indicates when you're pushing fatigue. We talked with Armando Mastrosi founder of exert training software about how objectively the software can tell when you need rest. It seems what data you are able to collect is a big part of the answer.
2: Well, you know, I believe that, you know, up until this point, a lot of the coaches and more enthusiasts have been using the existing metrics and trying to interpret them to understand, you know, how much, how much uh, acute training load and chronic training load and try to understand, you know, what kind of recovery demands they might have as a result of those. But it becomes very, uh, requires lots of interpretation. Uh, and part of that is because of the, the d- differences that you're going to see in results from individual to individual. We can start to identify recovery in a more generalized way. So you, so the, the user, the athlete, doesn't necessarily need to understand all of the ways and what the numbers and how to interpret the numbers. We, we now interpret them for the user. So one of the things you'll notice within the software is that when you first log in, you'll see a, a number of stars on your on your screen. We call it training status. And what we, what we do is we combine two dimensions that you would normally get from your, your PMC, or in our case, what's called the XPMC, which is your you know, chronic training load, acute training load, is, uh, is an interpretation of that information for you automatically. So we show you essentially what your training load is. But we show you rather than as, as a number, we give you a star. So people talk about, I want to get to my third star, I want to get to my fourth star. And all that really means is that they want to accumulate more training load. And so right. we should, we give them, so it becomes more motivational. Rather than chasing a number, is to say, oh, okay, I'm chasing a certain level, right? And we associate level three as being a competitive athlete um, where you got to reach a certain level of training load. So you'll see that with a number of stars. But then we color code the stars as well to let you know whether, what's the software, what's the data showing about how you should be feeling, right? So if you just came off, a, you know, a big... Uh, multiple rides over the weekend, it will turn red, right? You'll show, It'll show you as being very tired. And we get a lot of questions saying, it's showing I'm very tired, but I'm not very tired. And we always have to explain, no, it's just what the data is expressing about you. Right. Um, you know, the data can't know how you feel. It can only say what the data says about how you feel. And we do characterize it in terms to try and match how we expect them to feel because then it kind of makes sense to say, oh, if it says I'm very tired, you know, the software is going to pr- prescribe recovery, it's going to let's say give you a couple of days before it'll prescribe additional training, um, and these become easy visuals for people to interpret and to follow. So this is kind of how we believe the software can come in is is to give an interpretation of what the data says about an individual and help them identify how they you know really what how they should be treating their recovery. Again, anybody can do whatever they feel like at the time, but at least the software is giving them some level of interpretation of the information.
1: So it sounds like the software is using things like the, the acute training load to say, Hey, you just hit yourself with a lot of training that's beyond what you could normally what you normally do. Correct so you might be getting fatigued right now. But it, it's indirect measures at the end of the day. It's indirect. Right. right.
2: And we can certainly look to incorporate, and there's a desire to do this, is to incorporate, incorporate HRV. So if we start collecting HRV which is, data. Which is
1: heart rate variability. Heart rate sorry. variability,
2: right, which is another. And there have been, there have been actually some, some of our users that are, are actually doing that actively, monitoring the HRV, corresponding with uh, the data that they get from our system. So there is there is a relationship. But you know, ultimately, there's if we're collecting all the data, one thing, one thing that's really important is you, know, you need a full view of the athlete. If all they're doing is on the bike and all you're collecting all the power data, then that's great. You You have all the information, and you can actually do a very good job of saying, yeah, you're probably pretty tired right now. You need to take a few days off. But if they're commuting on their bike and you're not collecting any of that data, or they're running and they're doing swimming. Again, you, know, you need to think about how we're going to overlay that information in terms of how that's impacting your cycling and your other, other sports. There's more information that you need to gather to give a better picture of where the, what the current status is of that athlete so you can better prescribe your training. I had, a,
1: I had an athlete a couple of years ago like that who uh, decided to start bike commuting to work and didn't tell me. Uh-huh. and it was 45 minutes one way <laughs> so all of a sudden he's not handling the right. normal training load and, and i'm trying to figure out what's going on I'm saying right. you, you don't seem to be handling it well uh-huh. and i just don't understand why i can't yeah. see what's going and finally he's like oh yeah no i started bike commuting to work." so you just added what six <laughs> like, seven yeah, hours of training per week day and, day and, day and day never told me about day. it <laughs>
2: right exactly so and that's that's something that we see in our software quite, quite a bit right and you know, how do you deal with sparse data sets, right? So individuals that are only writing a few times a week and things like that. These can be kind of uh, a little more challenging in terms of how do you best prescribe and identify what's best for them at the time.
1: Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like if you were going to use a, a metric that can that can give a more holistic picture, something like heart rate variability is what you would personally go towards.
2: Well, that seems to be one of the... the recovery end. Yeah, for, that seems to be a... a um, there's a, a consensus that there's there's real value in, in maintaining and tracking your HR HRV. So we certainly see that. I, I think what would be really interesting, um, you know, we're big fans of actually uh, analyzing heart rate data. We don't do that today. It's part of our plan. Um, but there are markers. And there's information you can gather from plain heart rate data, as you're well aware, right? You can see what's happening to an athlete mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their fatigue, in terms of ability to perform, right from their heart rate. Some of that is historically obtained from their power data. So you can look back and their power data is saying, well, based upon all of these hard rides you've been doing, we expect you to be pretty slow and pretty fatigued at this point, right? So you can look back at the power data. You can look back at their heart rate data and their current heart rate data. You can look at their historical HRV data. I think when you combine all those together, you can get a really good picture in terms of what the athlete and where they're going to be at a given point in time to say, okay, so you know, uh, today's Thursday, but, you know, next Thursday, after all this training, because we have a really clear idea of, of how these, all these all the power you do interacts with you, these other systems, that now we can identify that that's going to be a rest day for you. And we know it's going to be a rest day. And, uh, and, that's, and that's how we're going to manage your training.
1: Unfortunately, we ran out of time with Dr. Gaston, though we will give him the final say in a minute. In the meantime, let's get back to Chris and I and the potential dangers of only focusing on training.
0: I've found that as I've gotten a bit older, I've gotten a little bit wiser about recovery. I'm kind of one of those lazy cyclists. Like I, I know that I do well when I get enough recovery, and it's only become more apparent as I've gotten older when I take the time to sort of rest as hard as I train. If you're you're training intensely you need to rest just as intensely it feels good too you know it's it's not fun when you're in the hole (laughs) but when you're sprightly when you have energy all the time when you when you should have energy and when you're overloading yourself and you're you're down that's also a big piece of the puzzle but man it feels good when you're when you're well recovered because then your training can go better too
1: well, so Chris, I remember you actually handed me a copy of your book, the, the Haywire Heart, and there was a questionnaire in there about exercise addiction, because that can lead to heart issues. Uh, and one of the the attributes of people who are addicted to exercise is they can't take a day off. Right. They, they get very nervous about it. And if you are one of those people who feels like, I've uh, taken a day off, I couldn't handle that. You might have an exercise addiction issue and understand that you are training every day not to your your primary objective here might not be to get fitter to do what's best for your training it might be to satisfy this addiction and that's not necessarily a healthy thing so you, you should be able to take time off the bike and be okay with it yeah it sometimes
0: it becomes this thing you must do to avoid feeling guilty and that's a very bad thing. If you're just doing it to avoid negative thoughts about yourself,
1: that's when it's crossed the line into a, something you don't want. Right. And which reminds me, for any of our triathletes out there, you need time off as well. And a rest day is not a day where you go and swim, a rest day is a day where you go and sit on the couch. And, and I could hear every triathlete listening to this just cringe. Dr. Jason Glowney from the CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center has worked with a lot of top athletes, helping them to stay healthy and on top of their games. He has a few thoughts on how to use both subjective and objective measures to create a morning routine, and also how to know when to stop a workout and go home.
7: I think uh you know some of it can be uh boiled down to you know subjective things that they can uh, they can listen for you know what I do when I get out of bed is i take uh I take an assessment of how I'm feeling usually it's pretty stiff and sore, and about ten minutes later it's feeling a little bit better. Those heavy legs those things that you can kind of feel when you're uh, taking those first steps in the morning you know that's an important sign and thing that you can kind of look at. I think it's wise to actually monitor your vitals at home uh you can uh, see what your resting heart rate is in the morning you know sometimes that's a precursor or a prelude to uh you know, uh, some type of overtraining, mildly so. Uh, we call it um, like a functional overreach uh, if it's, a, if it's a, a short-term thing. But also looking at um, hydration status. Um, when I'm training hard, I like to get on the scale frequently. So you can kind of know, um, uh, get a good idea of what your fluid status is. Unless you're trying to lose weight and you're expecting the numbers to keep going down, you want to try to maintain body weight, and doing it after rides, too, is, is quite important. You can get a better idea of how much fluid you lost out. In physiology, uh, we think uh, losing about 2% of your um, uh, fluid uh, or plasma volume is probably okay. Uh, anything above 4%, there's actually going to be uh, quite a detriment to your performance, it seems. So uh, those are probably some of the more important things to do. Usually in these uh, high-level athletes, they're hyper-aware of what their bodies feel like, and I think that um, has played a big role in keeping them out of trouble. Uh, we see a lot of athletes, and it's kind of become more and more common to hear about uh, athletes like Cav this year who had a reactivation of Epstein-Barr and just the amount of time that he lost as a result of it. We tend to get in this situation when you're feeling good, you want to do more, race more, train harder. It's a thing that uh, you got to listen to your coach and listen to uh, kind of that inner voice and you telling you it's probably not a good idea to do this. I see uh, people, every other injury that comes in, they said, I was feeling great and I kept pushing and pushing and now this happened. So uh, just keep that in mind. And I think uh, learning to be subjective about how you're really feeling, taking stock in, um, in things every day, I think that plays a huge role with uh, keeping you out of trouble.
1: So if you're going out for a ride or if an athlete's going out for the ride, are there any particular signs that if they have those you would say, turn around, and go home or talk to your coach or, or go sure. see a medical doctor?
7: I think the biggest rides that that plays in is if you have intensity on your schedule. Um, And uh, I'll tell my patients that uh, if you're going out there and you're doing uh, some of the first reps on the set and, boy, it's just not coming around, you're really struggling to hit your numbers, that's not the time to try to push through it. I think you stop the set, um, just spin easy, go home, take a break, eat, rest, see how you feel the next day, talk to your coach if you do have one, and kind of see what they suggest. Is it something that it was a key workout that you got to make up, or is it one of these ones that wasn't that big of a deal that you can skip it this week and meanwhile recover and feel good and fresh uh, for the next round?
0: All right, so we've learned so much today about recovery, how to measure it. Now it's time to apply this to our training so we can get faster. What
1: does it look like to apply all of these things to your training, Trevor? So why don't we start by talking about your typical day? And unfortunately, uh, Dr. Gaston couldn't stay with us for this part, so I hope I I represent what he would have said well. But just thinking about your typical day, remember that Dr. Gaston said there is no one perfect metric. You want to use multiple. So using a combination of those subjective and objective are really going to help you to, to measure your recovery. So thinking about in the morning, you can go as far as to use one of these short surveys every day. I'm not sure something like the, the rest Rescue or the, the Palms with its multiple questions is something you want to try every day. But try one of the shorter ones and maybe one of the longer ones once a week. If you have the gear, you can do a heart rate variability test in the morning to get a sense for your recovery. As Dr. Gassman was saying, resting heart rate, not as great. Most importantly is just get a subjective feel for yourself. If you wake up in the morning, it's hard to get out of bed. The legs are feeling sluggish. You're having a hard time walking up the stairs. Listen to these things. If you're a zombie. If you're a zombie. Right. Which, frankly, if I wake up before 6 o'clock or (laughs) 7 o'clock, it's always the way I am. But know when you're starting to feel unusual signs of fatigue. And also listen to the people around you. If your family is complaining, you're getting crabby, that's a sign. These are all good signs of fatigue. When you're out for your ride, there's a couple things that will give you indicators. And these are good signs of you need to pull the plug. One of them is you you start the ride. I often try to do, after I've gotten a bit of a warm-up, get up to about 200, 220 watts and see where my heart rate is. And if it is exceptionally sluggish and low, that's a good sign that I'm fatigued, and maybe I need to turn around and go home. If I'm still not certain I'm doing intervals at the day, I will start the intervals. If I can't do them at their usual quality, if my heart rate is really low when I'm trying to do them, that is, again, a sign that my body's not ready, and that's where you need to pull the plug. And I will tell you, I pull the plug probably 20% of the time. The few times that I don't when I get those signs, it was always a bad choice. I've said this before, and I'll keep saying this. I did read Tyler Hamilton's book, and one thing that really frustrated me about that book is he said that he never missed an interval session, that no matter what he had on his plan, he always did it. And I know a lot of people read that and said, that's the way to be a great cyclist. Are you talking about the one where he talks about all the drugs he put in his system? (laughs) Yes, and that's my point. That's a bad lesson to learn, because if you read about descriptions of EPO from riders that were on EPO, they tell you. They feel great every day. When you're on EPO, yeah, you can go out and do the hard training every day. And I'm sure Tyler will come back to me and say it hurt because he was doing hard intervals. But still, when you are not on all these substances, you are going to go out and have days where your body is not ready and you need to hear those signs and not say, what's wrong with me? I have to push harder, turn around, go home. That being said, there are times when you do need to push through. And one of the biggest points I'm going to make here is if you are fatigued and pushing through intervals, which you need to teach your body, if that is planned, that's a better sign than if you're going out and for some reason your body feels awful, you feel beat up, and that wasn't part of the plan. This is just meant to be a typical week. That's a sign that you haven't been monitoring yourself well, and you might be going pushing yourself towards that that burnout. So That's when you pull the plug. But if you say, I'm going to do a fatigue week, I have this week where I want to be tired by the end of this week. And on the fifth day of that week, you go out to do intervals and you feel pretty bad. Well, that was the plan. And it's a good thing sometimes to push through. So do it. Do it when it's part of the plan. Don't keep pushing through when it's not part of the plan. Remember, drop in performance is one of the key signs of of burnout. If the performance isn't there, don't say, I'm getting weak. I need to train harder. Tell yourself, I need to rest. Got anything to add to that? Just do commutes, never do intervals? Hey, that's, that's,
0: you know, even those can tire you out, depending on the length and how hard you ride your commutes. But no, I... The um, the other day, Chris rode a full 50 minutes home. It was tiring. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if you're riding really hard for 50 minutes, it can be tiring. (laughs) That is fair. (laughs) But I don't do that. (laughs) I ride for 20 minutes to warm up. 10 minutes really hard and 20 minutes to cool down. That's my 50 minutes. <laughs> how do you beat me? Uh, seven years younger, seven years less work in my body, at least seven years. You've been riding a bike a lot more than me. Maybe you just need a year off the bike. None of this two weeks off.
1: Yeah, you I, might need a year off. I did that. I got slower. <laughs> so so our next podcast with Chris, we're going to do a whole episode on how to get decrepit like me. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm looking forward to that one. That is going to be joke after joke after joke at Trevor's expense.
1: And there are so many.
0: (laughs) Hey, everybody, did you know Trevor was Canadian? Don't go down that road. (laughs) So uh, what would be your concluding summary here, uh, Dr. Gaston? What one-minute takeaway can you give us for athletes out there?
3: I think it's a combination of objective and subjective measures. Uh, the subjective measures are, are very sensitive. So looking at training diaries, moods, a, a short scale on a regular basis that you may be able to record and track and monitor. Um, and it's the serial value over time. It's looking at trends more than individual daily scores. And perhaps in the objective field, it's probably in the heart rate area. Heart rate variability, heart rate kinetics. I think it, it's probably still early days in our understanding, but I, I think there's uh, there's some good practical upside in uh, in heart rate.
1: Fantastic, great summary.
3: Thanks so much, Dr. Gaston,
0: for joining us today. It was a pleasure.
3: Really enjoyed the opportunity. Um, I hopefully provided some useful insights uh, on a, on a practical level as as well as some scientific insights for your readers and uh, listeners.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. We've got a new email address for you to send us all of your lovely feedback. It is fasttalk at velonews.com. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Dr. Gaston, Brent Bookwalter, Matt Casson Frank Overton, Armando Mastracci, Dr. Jason Glowney, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.